We're going to take a break this morning from our study of the book of Ephesians, and since I'm going to be gone next week and couldn't stand the thought of a Christmas season where I didn't preach on Christmas, <laughs> the guys said, well, we'll give you some grace and you can preach on Christmas two weeks out. So we're going to do that. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, if you will. Hebrews chapter 10. We're looking today at Christmas and the gospel from maybe a perspective that you're unfamiliar with or at least haven't thought about in a while. I'm going to read the first 10 verses of Hebrews 10, and then we'll draw our attention to them. Hebrews 10, verse 1, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. And he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, well, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Seems like... Each year that we celebrate Christmas here at Mission Road, I hear myself saying the same thing over and over. And preachers tend to do that. I hear myself saying that neither holiday, Christmas or Easter, makes sense without the other. Christmas tells us of the identity of Jesus while Easter informs us about the reason Jesus came to earth. In the Christmas narrative, God became a man, took on human flesh, and at Easter, in the Easter narrative, this, this incarnate God was the acceptable sacrifice and payment for sin to God the Father on the cross in the place of those who believe. We sing the confluence of Christmas and Easter in so many ways in so many hymns. I hope you notice Angels from the realm of glory, that wonderful carol. Here's a quote from that. God with man 
is now residing, yonder shines infant light. God with man residing. Oh, holy night, we're reminded that the world was in sin and error pining. I was asking one of the kids uh, before the worship service, so what's your favorite hymn, uh, Christmas hymn? And she said, uh, oh, holy night. And I said, do you know those words? Yes, long lay the world in sin and error shining. No, well, almost, almost, almost. We're pining, we're longing for redemption. God rest ye, merry gentlemen. Tidings of comfort and joy come from knowing that Jesus Christ, our Savior, was born to save us from all Satan's power when we were gone astray. What child is this? It underscores this truth beautifully that this is, the, this, this is Christ the King. And then that, fra- that, that, uh, that verse that always just tears into my heart, nails Spears shall pierce him through the cross he born, be born for me, for you. First Noel. Then let us with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord who hath made heaven and earth of naught and with his blood mankind hath bought. Christmas and Easter in the same line. Joy to the world. Let Earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Jesus is king and savior, Luke and Matthew record for us. Hark the herald angels sing, my favorite, which Aaron so graciously has sung uh, not often enough, but every year. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the ever- everlasting Lord. Then this phrase, veiled, hidden in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity. Think about it. Veiled in flesh, hidden in flesh, the Godhead see. Amazing. Angels we've heard on high exhorts one and all to come adore on bended knee Christ the Lord, the newborn King. It's easy for us to be sentimentally moved by these songs, even by the songs and the, the melodies and the tunes at Christmas, and there's nothing wrong with that. I was listening to a, a, a playlist of Christmas music just last week, and I heard a song that I, that I remember, if you're, a, if you're a young generation and you don't know what a, a, an album is, just work with me for a second. But I remember we had an RCA unit in our living room that had a TV in the middle and on both sides were a side and on the top of one side was a, was a turntable. And I can still remember the songs and even the scratches on the album where we would listen to those songs. And when I hear that, I can almost feel the humidity of the air. I can almost smell the cinnamon rolls being baked when I, when I hear those songs. There's sentimental nuances of Christmas. Those are wonderful. We should enjoy those, embrace those. Thank God that they're so graciously given to us, but there's more. And as Christians, we understand and we believe that. It's not that we shed all sentimentality. That's the grace of God. It's that we add to it our understanding of theology. No other person in history has drawn as much attention to his birth, or her birth, than Jesus Christ. And no other person in history has had so much attention put on their death than Jesus. 
I think this passage here in Hebrews 10, to me at least, is one of the sweetest confluences where Christmas and Easter come together in such crystal clear explanation from this writer. And remember, at this point, they didn't celebrate Christmas and Easter. He was just talking about the incarnation and the death of Christ and bringing those together in understanding for us. These verses in Hebrews 10, 1 to 10, finish really a larger section that began back in chapter 7, verse 1. That's where the author began to argue for the superiority of Christ as the priest after the order of Melchizedek over the Levitical priest. This priest is better than any other priest. And the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ, better than, better than, better than. Then in chapter 8, verse 1, all the way through 10, 18, the writer teaches the superiority of Christ's priestly ministry, which is based on a superior promise or covenant of God. And this superiority included the ultimate superior sacrifice of the death of Jesus. So we look at these 10 verses. This is, to be honest, this is more of a communion meditation leading up to our time at the Lord's table in just a few minutes than it is a full exposition. Each of these verses would love a full sermon by themselves, but we're going to pull them all together and discover just in looking at this from a Christmas perspective, two theological facts for understanding Christmas as gospel truth. Not just a birth narrative, but Christmas as gospel truth, the truth of the good news. Two theological facts for understanding Christmas as gospel truth. The first is in the first four verses. The Old Testament sacrificial system was an impermanent cleansing or atonement for sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system was an impermanent cleansing or atonement for sin. Verse 1, for the law, now when we say the law, we know that that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the law of Moses. The law, which the Jews prized and praised, they saw themselves as so privileged to have been given the law, and they were. For the law, since it's only a shadow of the good things to come, this would have stopped the readers in their tracks. This is a, a book written to the Hebrews. Spoiler alert, that's the Jews. It's the Jewish believers who had come to understand the gospel and were trying to reconcile their Old Testament with the New Covenant. This would have shocked them. Is, is the writer dissing the law? For the law, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very substance or form of things. That's a big statement. The law, according to this writer, has a problem. What about your law is perfect, O Lord, restoring the soul? How can the law have a problem? Its problem was in its incompleteness. It was a form, a shadow rather, of the form of things to come. And it can never, here's his, his meaning. The law can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer year by year, make perfect or complete or finish the, the justification of those who draw near. Otherwise, 
would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, once having been cleansed, would no longer have to come back and do it again, have consciousness of sins. They would be done. Remember, this is written to a group of Jews who had believed the gospel. They treasured the law. And yet we find out in verse 1 that the law is only a shadow, not the main, the main substance, not the thing that makes the shadow, but a shadow of something else. What did he mean? Well, he says the law possesses an anticipatory nature. It could never do what it anticipates. What does it anticipate? Taking away sin. Said it could never make perfect those who draw near in worship. Make perfect, the writer uses this to not to talk about sinless perfection. Following chapters actually show that he was speaking about definitive removal of guilt. This would give the worshipers free access to God through the sufficiency of Christ. And his point is simple. The Old Testament sacrifices had to be repeated time after time, year after year. Look at verses 3 and 4. In those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. And verse 4, if you underline things in your Bible, if you mark things of of importance that you want to remember, this is one of those verses. It is impossible, verse 4. It is impossible. Not possible. For the blood, which is shorthand for death, sacrifice, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These Old Testament sacrifices were effective, but only in a temporary and only in a temporal sense. Look down at chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now, if you've read your Old Testament recently and you've read Leviticus 16, you have a question. Because it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And if you follow the shedding of blood in the sacrificial system, your sins will be covered. Ah, but there's the, there's the understanding. Cover, the word atonement means covered. They were covered temporarily until next year. Then you had to do it again. It's a little bit, I don't want to be crass, but I, one of the things that I, 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 I'm so impressed with my wife, this can tell you that I don't do dishes enough, and I probably should, so this is full confession. I have watched my wife for three decades be so faithful to wash dishes, and they get dirty again, and then you got to wash them again, and then they get dirty again, and then you have to wash them again. And then they get dirty again, and you have to wash them again. Then they get dirty again, and you wash them again. You get in the picture over and over and over. They're never cleansed one time, and I never have to wash these dishes again. As silly as that illustration is, that's what's going on here. you got to keep doing it over and over and over because the dirt is not removed from our sin, from our souls. Instead of empowering them to stand before God in a way that they would no longer have felt guilt for their sins, these yearly rituals actually were an annual reminder that their sin was still there and needed to be paid for. And then his point is, no animal can actually take away your sins. 
It's not powerful enough. Oh, it can cover them temporarily until next year. I think several years ago, I may have shared with some of you, Kim and I were walking on Indian Creek Trail. It's a beautiful trail. And there's at one, one place on that trail where another trail comes and meets Indian Creek Trail, and, and uh, uh, the two become the same trail. But we were walking, and there was a gentleman walking on the trail that was going to meet ours, and we ended up meeting exactly at the same moment. And it, it's one of those times you can't ignore that person. You have to say hi. And so we were walking the same way and walking the same pace, and we just kind of struck up a conversation. And uh, he, he, we, after trying to say, hey, uh, I think Kim might have said, do you go to church anywhere or something? He says, oh, oh no, I'm Jewish. Oh, okay. And so we started talking, and we said... Just a, just a question for you. Do you ever offer a sacrifice for your sin? Do you ever kill a goat or a lamb or a cow for, for your sin? He goes, oh, no. And we said, why? We have the same Genesis through Malachi you do. There's a lot of requirements to offer sacrifices. Why don't you offer sacrifices for sin? His answer was incredible. He says, well... God doesn't expect sin to be paid for by death and blood anymore. That's old school. He has no expectation of that anymore. At that point, by the way, I was out of the conversation, and my wife was like a tick on a hound dog. It was, and she said, really? Well, then how is your sin covered? How is it paid for? His answer, God accepts sacrifices of works and praise and service instead of blood to sacrifice to be the payment for our sins. And let me just say that I learned a lot about my wife's understanding of substitutionary atonement as she just let this guy have it. Come to find out, he was a rabbi. And then after we kept asking questions, he found out that I was a pastor. <laughs> and he started walking way faster than us. <laughs> It broke my heart, though, that he didn't understand that he needed his sins paid for and that no amount of service would ever do that. The Old Testament sacrificial system was an impermanent cleansing for atonement. There's a second theological fact for understanding Christmas as gospel truth. Jesus' incarnation provided the way for a permanent cleansing, or atonement for sin. Oh, this is good news. If you get your pen still out and you still like underlining important, I want to remember things in my Bible, listen to this phrase. Therefore, when he comes into the That's Bethlehem. That's Christmas. God comes into the world, the second member of the Trinity. And then he goes to Psalm 40 and does some exposition. Now, this is... Um, I want you to be as amazed and freshly overwhelmed as I am. In this next verse, 
the writer allows you and me to listen to a conversation that happens in the depths of the Trinity before Bethlehem. We get to hear God talking to God. He quotes Psalm 40. Is that not perfect that when God speaks, he quotes scripture which he wrote and spoke? Sacrifice and offering you have not desired. That's an amazing reality. You keep telling us to do sacrifice and offering. What do you mean you don't desire it? But a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. What is this about? Well, before we look into the uh, meaning, we have to deal with a, a bit of a, a textual anomaly. And I want you to enjoy this problem that we're going to resolve together. I want you to look at verse 5, and then I'm going to read the quotation of Psalm 40. And you, tell me if you can hear the difference. It's pretty big. Okay, verse 5, therefore he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. I'm going to read the quotation that that's quoting. Psalm 40, verse 6, sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. My ears have been opened. How does that relate to a body you have prepared for me? Those are pretty fundamentally different sounding. Well, as we know, David was the author of Psalm 40. And after giving thanks to God in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 40, David speaks of the unmatched importance of obedience over sacrifice. That's the main point of Psalm 40, that people were wrongly thinking, I can live how I want, go to the temple, give my sacrifice, and then I'm good with God. Somewhat how some people think, well, I'll live how I want and go to church on Christmas and Easter or every now and then and God will be, God will be good with me. Do you remember the lesson that God taught Saul? Saul is told, go to the Amalekites and utterly destroy them. Even kill the livestock, God said. Well, Saul goes and kills the Amalekites, but he keeps the animals. They were tasty critters that he thought these, these could serve another purpose. What, what good is it to kill them and leave them in the, in the field? He keeps these animals and Samuel comes and confronts him. He tries to justify his disobedience by claiming, Oh, I kept these for sacrifices. Samuel then tells Saul, remember this, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey, you know it well, don't you? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed, to obey, better than the fat of rams. So this point that is being made in Psalm 40 and that this is making is, look, to do God's will, which he's going to refer to several times in this passage, to do what God wants is more important than the sacrifices, but where everything comes together is when the sacrifice is God's will. How does that come together? 
Well, let's, let's, let's uh, finish this little challenge of you've opened my ears versus a body you've prepared for me. Well, you need to understand this, and I think most of you understand this. There's the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew. There's the New Testament, which was written in Greek. Well, during the time of Jesus, the, the trade language, the, 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 uh, uh, the most popular language was Greek. They spoke in Aramaic in, in the Palestine, Palestine area, but they were predominantly, everyone knew Greek. So they produced a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and it was called the, anyone know? Septuagint. Good, very good. The Septuagint translates Psalm 40, a body you have prepared for me, instead of, you have opened my ears. What, how, how do we get there? Well, I could give you all of the, the, the nuanced understanding. Some people think, well, he's just being free and loose, the Septuagint's being free and loose with the translation. Well, the writer of the Hebrews quotes the Septuagint. Exactly. So how, how's this? What about the original Hebrew? Well, you have to go back to what does it mean you have opened my ears? I think he's just interpreting it. The whole context is God is not pleased with what you do with the sacrifices. He's pleased, pleased with what you hear and do in your body with you. So the Septuagint just takes that as a, an interpretive translation. And here's the, real, here's the reality. The fact that Hebrews quotes that interpretive translation means that's what God thought it would mean. And you say, well, I don't know, Rick. That's, that seems a little fishy. Can I give you a spoiler alert? Will you look down at verse 10? By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of of the body of Jesus once for all. So in the same context, he interprets the interpretation of the Septuagint in Psalm 40 that it's the body, the body of Jesus. So this conversation that takes place between the first, second, and third member of the Trinity to tell the second member of the Trinity, or the second member of the Trinity speaks to the other two and says, a body... A body has been prepared for me. He, there was God is spirit. There's not flesh and blood. And in this pre-Bethlehem moment, the second person of the Trinity says, you have prepared for me a human body. It would be the body of Jesus of Nazareth. It's incredible. Verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book is written to me, to do your will, O God. He was given a body to perfectly obey God in the flesh. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings, for sin you have not desired, you have not taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, I, then he said Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. There's some debate about this. I don't think it's that confusing. The first is the idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was temporary. He comes with a body to do away with that first system of atonement to establish the second, which is the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. We know that because of verse 10. We've been sanctified or literally justified, set apart, saved through the offering of the body of Jesus once 
for all. There's the contrast. Sacrificial system over and over, year after year, year after year, over and over, again and again. Now, Jesus' death was once, once for all. Now, verse 10, I do want to, I've said it a couple of times, that word sanctified can be confusing because often Paul uses the word sanctified about progressive holiness, progressive sanctification throughout your life. And that's an adequate uh, understanding of the way Paul uses that term. But the writer of the Hebrews, when he uses the word sanctified, it's a synonym for justified. And it can be used both ways. He has set us aside. He has justified. He saved us through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Why? Why? Have you ever thought about this? Let me give you an elevated status for just a few minutes, okay? Let's say that you were tapped on the shoulder by... God, and you were with a group of people to sit in a boardroom with a whiteboard, and you were to come up with a plan to save sinners. What would you have planned? Would you say, okay, I got an idea. God, holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the second person of the Trinity takes a body, a human body, a flesh, comes to the earth, lives a perfect life for three plus decades. And then instead of the sacrificial system, which is incomplete and insufficient to permanently deal with sins, let's have him be a proverbial lamb sacrifice of God. And let's let God in flesh be the sacrifice for sinners, so they can be right with the Father. Would you ever, ever make that up? No, no one would, but God did. Look back to Hebrews chapter 2. We see this explicitly written in Hebrews 2. Look at verse at, first at Hebrews 2, 9. But we do see him who is made for a little while... Lower than the angels, that's in his human form, namely Jesus, because of the suffering, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You cannot die if you are not alive. You say, well, what does that really mean? Verse 14. Here's the why. Therefore, since the children, that's people, share in flesh and blood, that's being human, he himself likewise partook of the same, flesh and blood. Why? Why did he do that? That through death, that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He, you see where Christmas and Easter come together? He took on flesh. A body was prepared for him. Jesus from Nazareth. Why? He became alive so he could taste death. So he could die instead of those who placed their faith in him. 
What a grace. What a grace. So when we look at the babe in the manger, we have to see it in the shadow of the cross of Calvary. But when we look at the cross of Calvary, we have to understand who is on that cross. It's the babe in the manger who is God, very God, the second person of the Trinity who said, you have prepared a body for me. Why? So I can go and live like them and die in their place. In summary, the ineffectual, incomplete, temporary nature of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament sacrificial system made the Son of God necessary to be the payment of sin. The argument of Hebrews in chapter 10 is that God requires a greater sacrifice. And Jesus was that sacrifice and made it voluntarily on his part. (laughs) But also the father, Isaiah 53 tells us, was pleased. That word just haunts me in in a wonderful way. Was pleased to crush him. Oh, we love the sentimental songs and sounds and tastes of Christmas, and we should enjoy that with our families. But please see through and beyond it to what's really happening, what we're called to celebrate is that the one on the cross was the one who was in heaven, who was given a body so that he could die for us. It's a perfect introduction for our hearts to receive the Lord's table.